Real talk. Let's talk about it. Well, good morning. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, going with those announcements, we have the relevant parenting conference kiosk in the lobby. We have the men's retreat kiosk. Make sure you swing by there, get information. Uh, we already have about 200 people registered for the conference, so we praise God for that. We're hoping many will come as we kick off uh, the relevant parenting network ministry here at our church. Uh, men, you really have two options. Either you can go to the kiosk or Tunch will find you some way, somehow. So uh, grab some information, whether you can go the whole weekend or just for Saturday, don't miss uh, that opportunity. Uh, one more for this weekend. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, we do this thing called Discover TBC. If you're new with us today or you've been coming for some time and, and you don't really uh, know the full picture of who we are as a church, come to this free lunch right after this service up the stairs in room uh, 315. We'll share the vision of who we are, how you can get connected. Uh, I'll give a tour of the building while we share the history of the church. So we hope uh, you will consider coming to that uh, after service. So we're excited uh, this weekend. As for the past about six months... We've been praying, we've been seeking, we've been interacting with a lot of different candidates as we've been waiting for God to bring uh, the right person to be our senior high youth director. And I, I praise God that uh, we found that individual. His name is Kyle Zakor. Uh, Kyle's been in youth ministry for years. Uh, he's originally from this area. And actually today he's with our senior high right now as he's beginning on staff this month. Uh, we are going to do a full commissioning of Kyle. Uh, his wife, Kendra, will be joining him uh, this month as they move up here from Atlanta area with their two beautiful kids. And uh, on the weekend of the 21st, 22nd, we'll be interviewing Kyle on stage and officially commissioning him as our new senior high director. And if, if you're a senior high parent or youth, whether you're connected or you've been disconnected with our senior high youth, this is the time and opportunity to engage. We're so excited for the vision Kyle has right in line where we see God wants to take our senior high youth. So we hope that this is a great time for you to get connected. So there's a luncheon uh, after the 22nd, and it's a meet and greet with Kyle. Put that on your calendars March 22nd. All right, let's pray and ask God to lead us in his word this morning. Father, we thank you for today. We, we thank you as we just sang that you are the great I am. We have nothing to fear, as Rick said, because we stand uh, secure in your son. And Father, there, there's nothing like the body coming together to study your word, for you to equip us and empower us to continue the ministry of your church. So Father, we always want to hear from you. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth today and the meditations on my heart would be honoring and pleasing to you, O oh God. In Christ's name, amen. So a few weeks ago, USA Today published an article entitled, Laughable Law, 25 Really Weird Lawsuits You Might Not Believe Were Ever Filed. Let me give you just a sampling from that article. Here's six that I picked out. These are legit lawsuits. Mom sued for confiscating son's phone. A 15-year-old boy in Spain sued his mother claiming he was mistreated by her when she took his phone to try to get him to study. Woman shocked that jelly beans contained sugar. I mean, I always thought they were natural fruit, didn't you? A California woman sued Jelly Belly for using the term evaporated cane juice instead of sugar in its jelly beans food label. I feel like this one relates to Pittsburgh well. 
woman sues for false weather prediction. <laughs> a, a woman from Israel sued weatherman Danny Rupp for having a false weather forecast. Two men sue McDonald's for being charged the same amount of money for a burger with or without cheese. They sued, uh, two guys from Florida sued McDonald's for $5 million. I don't know if cheese is that much, but, uh, Parents sue teacher for waking their son up in class. Legit. The parents of a student in Danbury High School in Connecticut said their son suffered hearing loss after his teacher slammed her hand on his desk to wake him up. And if these weren't messed up enough, I struggled even saying this one, but it's legit. Husband sues wife for ugly baby. That's the title. <laughs> messed up. A, uh, a man uh, accused his wife of having an affair because their baby was not very good looking and sued her for it. Ooh, man, that one's just wrong. We live in a day and age where those are legit lawsuits. We live in a lawsuit crazed culture. Now, are there times where we need professional legal counsel? Absolutely. And we also live in a lawsuit crazed time. That description, lawsuit crazed culture, actually more accurately described first century Corinth. In the Greco-Roman culture, lawsuits overflowed. The courts in ancient Greece were constantly busy. Everyone was really a lawyer. And as 20th century William Barclay, uh, theologian William Barclay once stated, the Greeks were characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were one of their chief entertainments. In a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent a very great part of his time either deciding or listening to law cases. As a major trade city in close proximity to Athens, which was the lawsuit really capital of that time, Corinth had become just like the other cities. They were lawsuit crazy. And as we've seen throughout Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, the church often looked no different than the culture around them. That's the aim of our text today. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bible app, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at a section in Scripture, verses 1 through 11, where Paul addresses the church in Corinth, the church who is taking interpersonal disputes, believer against believer, and they were parading the church business throughout the marketplace, the secular courts. This drove Paul mad. We're going to look at this text in detail, what's going on here with, as Paul addresses the church in Corinth. And then at the end, we'll look at four applications for the 21st century church. So let's dig in. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance, grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? By the phrase, does he dare go, we can picture Paul, eyebrows raised as he's writing this section of the letter, infuriated with his children of the faith. He just said in the section before in chapter 5 that they would not address serious sin issues in the church. They had sexual immorality just wide open in the church and they wouldn't address those issues. 
But when it came to simple, as he calls, trivial matters, man, all of a sudden, the believers in Corinth are all about judge, judge, judge. And even worse, they don't even handle that stuff internally. Just like the pagans around them, they're displaying their cases for all to see. When Paul says you're going to the unbelieving judges, by that word, he calls them unrighteous. He's not saying the Corinthian judges were necessarily bad judges by trade, but that word unrighteous represented their spiritual standing. The church was entrusting unbelievers who have a completely different worldview than a believer to solve disputes between believer and believer. We should do things differently in the church. This letter would most likely would have been read aloud to the entire assembly. And if you heard that phrase, do you dare, you would be thinking this is not another good section of the letter. Let's look at verses two through six. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. This is the first time Paul uses the phrase, do you not know? He uses it three times in our passage, six times throughout chapter six. In a sense, Paul is saying, you believe you are so wise, church in Corinth. But yet, what do you actually know? Don't you know that God has given you everything you need in his word? He has empowered you by the spirit. He has given you the structure of church leadership. Don't you know that you should be handling these trivial cases internally instead of just spreading them out for all to see? There's a lot of discussion on what Paul means here when he says these believers, believers will judge the world, we will judge angels. We know from scripture, in the kingdom to come, following the return of Christ, we will reign with Jesus in some capacity and we will rule with him, both the earthly and spiritual realms. There's a beautiful mystery to this authority that we will have with Christ and Paul doesn't give us a lot of detail here either. By ruling over angels, some believe Paul's saying that we will pass judgment with Christ on that final judgment of Satan and his fallen angels. We will take part in that judgment. Others view more literally roll over angels is that Paul is saying in the kingdom to come, we will exercise authority with Christ over the angelic host in the future kingdom to come. We know from scripture that from the beginning, God created angels to serve his purposes and to serve believers. Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, aren't they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, to serve believers? But here's the purpose for Paul bringing up our future authority, our greater authority, 
in the greater kingdom to come. Paul is reasoning from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, church, it's a mystery to us, but scripture is clear. One day, God's going to entrust us with authority to reign with his son, even given authority over the, the spiritual and earthly realms and the kingdom to come. And if God's going to entrust us with that level of authority to roll with him, why in the world can't you roll over these trivial matters now? What's wrong with you? God has given you everything you need, and yet you're parading it again in the public marketplace. Now, one might ask, is Paul saying the church should never take issues, no matter what they are, in the church to the secular courts or to the, the government authorities? I would say no. To be clear, Paul in no way is attacking government authorities instituted by God to promote law and justice in the world. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says that all should be subject to government authorities. He, Romans 13:1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and that those that exist have been instituted from God. It's all his idea. Specifically, I don't think Paul had criminal matters in mind. Sadly today, we see it in the news and local churches, criminal matters, sexual harassment, embezzlement, issues that absolutely as mandated by law from the church should go to government authorities. I don't think Paul here had criminal matters in mind. Based off how he describes them, trivial matters, and based off the context of our passage, which is surrounded by a letter that is all about the sins that are not being addressed by the Corinthian church. I believe by trivial cases, Paul was saying, stop taking your civil family disputes and matters to unbelievers who, who don't have the same view of justice and mercy and love that God has. When you do that, when you automatically run to the secular courts instead of first trying to handle those issues internally, you're basically saying you prefer state solutions over God's solutions. You're saying, you're basically saying we're no different than the unbelievers with their disputes. Paul says, church, you are more than qualified with the truth of God's word and the empowerment of the spirit to handle these trivial matters internally. But once again, you're sucked back into Corinthian culture. Once again, you look no different than the pagans around you. And in verse five and six and seven and eight, he kind of just lets them have it. Look again at verse five. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Literally, this is your embarrassment. Church, this is embarrassing at this point. Can it really be there is not one wise person in the church who can settle a dispute between the brothers? And here's the biggest shame, church. No one goes to law or the courts 
thinking they're going to lose. Man, we go to, you go to win. But even before your cases reach a final conclusion, you're already defeated. You already lost. Look at verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother. Paul says, forget about the outcome of these cases. You already lost. I think of three ways they lost. One, this was another setback in their spiritual maturity. Instead of showing that they are equipped with God's word and the structure of his church to own these disputes, once again, they've shown they have not grown up spiritually to handle these things differently than how the world handles them. It's, this is another knock to you who think you are spiritually mature. Secondly, it's another knock, a loss to your unity. Every time you take one of these disputes out to the public marketplace, you're just showing again you are a divided church. Instead of a church that is unified under the headship of Jesus Christ. And third, it's a loss in your witness for Jesus. When unbelievers see believers acting just like them, what conclusion can they come to beyond this gospel you proclaim has changed your life? I don't really see evidence of it. You look just like us. Paul says it would be better, even if you were wronged, even if you were defrauded, it would be better to be wrong and defrauded than to blow an opportunity to follow God's word, blow an opportunity to unify through the biblical process as we'll get to for conflict, and blow an opportunity to show a counter-cultural witness to a world who desperately needs Jesus Christ. Finally, impossibly an attempt to wake the Corinthians up Paul zooms out of the issues of these cases and brings it back to identity, brings it back to eternal matters in verses 9 through 11. Look at those final three verses. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The sins mentioned in these verses mirror the sins mentioned earlier in chapter 5. They were the prominent things that were shown in culture of the unbeliever. Paul might be using that laundry list of sins to show again that the unrighteous are, uh, don't have the credentials to handle Christian disputes. But really, I believe Paul is driving home this section back to identity and destiny, the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. With his third, do you not know, 
Paul reminds the Corinthian believers of their position in Christ. He reminds them that an unbeliever's identity, as Scripture says, is their sin. They are dead in their sin. All those sins listed that were prevalent in culture, that defines the unbeliever. That's all they have. They are their sin. That's who they are in their spiritual position. But a believer is alive in Jesus. Our identity is in Christ. A believer, Paul says, will have no share in the future kingdom to come. Their destiny is separation from God. But we're in Christ. Our destination is in that future kingdom, to reign with Christ. And that should affect our practice. That should affect how we conduct ourselves in a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. Man, verse 11, we wanna sit here for a few moments. If you're one who likes to highlight your Bible, highlight verse 11. Write it down this week, put it on your mirror, memorize it, I love this verse. It kinda pops up out of nowhere. As Paul drives home, this is who you are. Believer, this is who you are. Act like it, act like it. Paul says three descriptions, all past tense, because it's a done deal for the believer. Such were some of you. That, that way was your old way. It, it was the old way to define you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power, by the spirit of our God. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we love you enough to tell you those words do not describe you. You are not washed, you are not sanctified, and you are not justified. Those descriptions are only for believers in Christ. Scripture says that every person is a sinner at the core. We are born into sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty of our sin is death. It's not just the physical death, but our spiritual death, eternal separation from the living God. But praise God, as Paul reminds us, through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who convicts the sinner of their sin, Paul says, that's not who a believer is. He says, first, you were washed, meaning you were eternally cleansed of your sin and you're a new creation in Jesus Christ. When the spirit of God convicts a person of their sin and they realize there is nothing I can do to get to the holy, perfect God. And you trust in the one, the eternal son of God who took on flesh, the only one to live the perfect life we can never live, the one who went to the cross, bore your sin, was buried in the grave, and he rose again. When you trust in him, Paul reminds us first, you were washed clean spiritually. Your sin eternally cleansed. Past sin, gone. Present sin, washed by Jesus Christ. Future sin, the sins I'll even commit this week, washed by the blood of Christ. Paul reminds them, that's who you are. That's who you are, church. Titus 3, 5, he, Jesus, saved us, not because of works done by us, 
but according to his mercy. Man, the Corinthians who showed zero mercy towards one another. God showed his mercy to us by washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when you trust in Jesus, Paul says, we are in Christ and we are a new creation. Spiritually, the old gone. The new has come. Second, Paul says, as a believer, never forget you're sanctified. That word sanctify means you're set apart eternally in Christ. Jesus is at the right hand of God. We are spiritually positioned in Christ as we speak. That's our eternal security. And scripture says the church, literal meaning, called out ones, we're supposed to live as a set apart church. Maybe the Corinthians, hearing sanctified, went back to the start of Paul's letter when he said in verse 2 of chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus, you're called to be saints together. I mean, you're dividing each other. And you're supposed to be this called out church because of your set apart security in Jesus. And we do that. How do we represent a church that's set apart. We, we don't follow the world's way of doing things. We follow God's way. John 17, 17, the backbone of our church for six decades, sanctify them in the truth. Your word alone is truth. And I love that Paul saves justified for last. Speaking of going to court, where you would stand before a judge. You're taking all these trivial cases to the secular courts. One of you will be declared guilty or not guilty. With the word justified, he reminds them of the one thing they're truly guilty of, their sin, of the one thing they truly deserve the ultimate penalty for, their sin. God in his mercy, God in his grace, when you trusted in his son, he looks at you and says, not guilty, justified, declared righteous before God by the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus for your sin. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that God has done for us through his son and the power of his spirit. One day, one day I will stand, before, this can never get old for the believer. One day we will stand before God and he's not going to judge you based off your sin. He's going to look upon you and see the righteousness of his son. If you're the Corinthians hearing that word justified, man, how, how can we then go out of our way in trivial matters to judge our brother and sister? Show no mercy. Show no grace. We want to win. That's opposite of who we are and how God has put us in position with Christ. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, our prayer is that the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin, draws you into a relationship with Christ where you profess with your mouth, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe he did die on the cross for my sin, and I trust in him alone and his work on the cross and that he rose again for my salvation. If you do that, then those words will describe you today for the very first time. You will be washed. You will be sanctified. You will be justified. And that's the only, only way 
that you'll have peace for your soul. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Washed, sanctified, justified, and Jesus. All right, let's bring this home. I want to talk to the 21st century church believers. We might look at this text and think, what does the first century church in Corinth, who are all suing each other, have to do with us today? We're not really suing each other too much right now. Well, I still think underlying issues here could apply to us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to use those four phrases Paul used. Don't you dare. Don't you know. Don't you know. Don't you know to drive home for applications. We're going to call this as the WSJ church. This is not the Wall Street Journal church. This is the washed, sanctified, justified church. This is who we are. Then let's ask ourselves these maybe questions that Paul would say. First, don't you dare, church, take internal church issues and parade them in the public marketplace. The marketplace in Corinth would have been a physical location, just like we see in Athens in Acts chapter 17, where people went, spent time, exchanged ideas, debated one another, brought their trivial cases for all these lawyers to decide. And Paul's like, don't take your stuff, church matters, to the marketplace. Well, today we don't typically go to downtown McMurray to debate one another, right? Or Cannonsburg or any other area. The number one marketplace today is right here. Social media, where we love to parade things in our life. Sometimes even as believers, we can post issues with the church. Maybe believer against believer. Young people, watch that. Paul would say, don't go parade internal church issues to the public marketplace. That's what unbelievers do. We act differently. We have a process to this. When a believer blasts another believer or takes church issues to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you just took private matters and displayed for all to see. Paul would say, don't do that. Don't do that. We do things differently. Ask yourself these four questions. Anytime you post something or you want to make a position or you want to bring up a church issue, young people, you want to draw attention, ask yourself these four questions. One, is this post for personal attention or for building up the body of Christ? Is it really just for personal attention? Will this post in any way create church division? Does this post truly proclaim the good news of Jesus? Will this post exemplify that we're different? We're set apart and we operate differently than unbelievers. Unbelievers might take their issues to the online world for all to see. We don't do that. And here's why. Because God has given us a process to handle our internal issues. As the washed, sanctified, and justified church. And Paul might say, don't you know, Corinthians, there's a God-ordained process to handle internal conflict. Many spots in scripture where God speaks to the, our hearts in conflict, how we should interact with one another, the gentleness and approach. But Jesus, the greatest teacher there ever was, gave us detailed instructions on how we should handle disputes and conflicts. Specifically, Jesus speaks to sins against one another, but this process can apply to any dispute. 
Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. No gossip, no spreading the news. First option, one to one. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We'll come back to that. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If, if that doesn't work out, take one or two trusted believers with you. Don't take your best friends who are going to side with you. Take one or two trusted believers, unbiased, who will help bring a resolution. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, meaning church leadership. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Paul says, if that, Jesus says, if that doesn't work, tell it to the church. Here we would say up to the outer level. In the world, when you go after one another in disputes, like the Corinthian culture, you, you take each other to court for, for one ambition only. Win. I want to win. Jesus says the church has a process to do it differently. And it's not about retaliation. It's about restoration. Jesus said back in verse 15, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. More literally, you have restored your brother or sister. That's our aim. God's process is different, aimed at a different result. That's how we stay unified, even as sinners saved by grace. Number three. Don't you know, as the washed, sanctified, and justified church, it's best to first seek a believer's counsel over an unbeliever's counsel. Now, am I saying in all matters of life, we ignore all counsel and all wisdom from any family member, friend, or authority who is not a believer? No, I'm not saying that. If tomorrow... You go to your doctor. Your doctor says, you're going to die this week unless you start doing this. I probably wouldn't say, are you a believer? You know. <laughs> I might listen to his expertise. And, and whenever possible, in all decision making, we as the church always want to seek a believer's counsel first. Think about right now, who's the first person you go to in your life when an issue arises? Are they a believer? Who's the one who has the greatest input in your life? Are they a believer? When it comes to disputes, the, the content, the text of this passage, when it comes to marriage advice, parenting advice, career calling advice, youth, advice on dating, sexuality, academics, your future, advice on who you are. Man, always seek the advice of a believer. Someone you trust who has the mindset and the approach of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. I have two men 
who speak into my life when situations arise. I would even say uh, they're close friends, but they're not ones I hang out with all the time. But here's why I go to them. His delight is in the law of the Lord. I know these men are godly men. I know they will always say, well, Dave, let's look at God's word together. They won't automatically spit out their own wisdom. They will point me to the wisdom of God. Do you have that person in your life? Corinthians, don't go running all your issues to the unbelievers. Handle that internally and no matter what's going on in your life, do you have those people in your corner who you know will point you back to the Lord? One more. As the washed, sanctified, and justified church, don't you know the gospel, meaning the good news of Jesus, should never remain stagnant but permeate every area of your lives? I love uh, verse 11 in this text. Again, it seems to pop up out of nowhere. Paul is in the middle of addressing these trivial matters, these court cases, and then all of a sudden he goes right back to the identity and destiny of the believer. He goes right back to the position in Christ. It's as if Paul is saying, church, don't let the gospel become stagnant in your life. The change that Jesus has for you does not stop at conversion. When you trusted in him, he wants to take over every area of your life. Let his gospel permeate everything you do. He's talking to believers who look no different than the world. He's saying, church, the gospel changes our marriages, changes our parenting, changes our identity, how we even view ourselves, changes our purpose, changes our career life, how we view work, changes our academic students, changes the way we view relationships. Everything. Jesus changes everything. And it should be evident in the washed, sanctified, justified church. You know, if you're traveling with us through Scripture in the, uh, our reading through the Bible this year as a church, uh, you know, we're going through Exodus and we go into the other Old Testament books, uh, God would always remind Israel, right, of all the things he did for them. Sometimes you'll read a couple chapters that just is reminiscing of the faithfulness of God. <laughs> I love, and all that stuff's pointing to the Savior to come. I love in the New Testament, Paul just says, Jesus. Jesus, he's enough. He's enough. What Jesus has done for you is all you need to know to live a life fully surrendered to him. May we be a washed, sanctified, justified church because of our position in Jesus, because of our unity with one another. We, we handle conflict differently. We're not out to get our brother and sister. We're out to restore one another because we, we have a bigger purpose in mind, not to win a dispute, but to proclaim Christ. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll get to this section a little bit in our study. Paul sums it up this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul says, give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks, to the church of God. He's saying, he's killing everybody. Don't give an offense to the unbeliever or believer. And by that, he's saying, don't be a person who inhibits others to see Jesus. And everything you do for the glory of God, 
Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. Why, Paul? Why are you living this fully surrendered life? But that of many, that they may be saved. That through my testimony, that everything about the gospel permeates my life, God would use me, that many may trust in Jesus. I'm gonna ask that you stand. Uh, if you're able, our worship is in song, our worship is in the word, and never, when we sing through a song, think about the words we're saying. We're going to sing this song, Your Love on the Line. It speaks of how Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, he put his love on the line for you. And he's just asking us in a response to fully submit to him. Here's how the song goes. You put your love on the line. To bear the weight of sin, that was mine. You washed over my river of wrongs into a sea of your infinite love. And our response, this is a, a visual of a submission. My arms held high. Lord, I give my life. Not a part of it. God, you have my life because I'm found in Christ and I am in your love forever. You sing this with me. You put. You put your love on the line to bear the weight of sin that was mine. Washing my river of love. Into the sea of your infinite love. With arms held high. With arms held high. Lord, I give my life. Knowing I'm found in Christ. In your love.
I'm going to ask that uh, everyone, eyes closed, and uh, just in a moment of submission as a church, um, if you need prayer today, come up front, but with just every head down, eyes closed, if you're comfortable in this posture of worship, we, didn't, we don't want to force anyone uh, in a posture of worship, but if you're comfortable putting your hands up and out, let's close it as one church and just that visual representation of submission to God, saying, God, we surrender to you. Father, we come before you. God, more than our arms, but with our hearts and our minds submitted to you. In full surrender as your washed, sanctified, and justified church. God, that we might exemplify to a watching world who desperately needs to experience the truth and love of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, equip us this week as we go out to represent him. May we spur on for unity. Division's going to come. That's natural in a local church full of sinners saved by grace. When it comes, may we submit to your word, end disputes for restoration, that we may remain unified and through trial become stronger as one body. So, Father, as your surrendered church, now we go to live for you. We disperse physically into our homes, our communities, our workplaces, our schools, where we are united by your spirit, and that we would live this week as your washed, sanctified, justified church. In Jesus' name, amen.